Things escalate. The true prophet has his life threatened and lives, and the false prophet has his life threatened and dies. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome. We hope this is edifying, and I uh, just want to remind you guys to like, subscribe, and comments. Uh, we love to interact with you guys on social media. Brandon, we are in a sad and slightly hopeful book. Yes, definitely. There's definitely going to be a lot of hope here. Um, but yes, a lot of a lot of sadness. This is the weeping prophet Jeremiah. Mm. So it's Jeremiah part two. Yep. Um, we said Jeremiah takes place around the fall of the southern kingdom. Really, yep. he prophesies it. He warns them. It falls at the end of the book. Yep. Um, the kingdom falls and yeah, by Babylon. Northern kingdom's already fa- fallen. Syria yeah. and Babylon takes over another world power, and then Babylon takes over. Well, we'll see. Yeah, comes and uh, wrecks uh, Jerusalem. That's right. So we've seen these themes of the covenant. We saw last week some Deuteronomy uh, influences yep. mm-hmm. as Jeremiah's father was the one who dis- discovered the law. Right, Hilkiah mm-hmm. rediscovered the law, I guess you could say, yep. as it was hidden away. And so he's calling them, Jeremiah's calling them to obey the covenant. And we're gonna, he's going to look forward, not mm-hmm. in this section, but in the next section to the new covenant. Mm-hmm. We've seen God's word and its strength and its power. We'll see that more today. And we've seen this theme of exile. They're going to be leaving the land in exile, and um, and then we, we're going to see future hope as well. So a lot of those themes will come in and tie in in this section. Very cool. So, well, let us jump, let's jump right, right in. We are in chapter 11. That's right. So chapter 11, so Jeremiah is going to, in this section, start, start uh, using some signs. So I mentioned this last week, and we saw this a little bit in Isaiah, but these signs are... They're prophetic images, they're enactments of what will happen to Israel. So mm-hmm. these different signs as a way to point to, typically it's pointing to Israel's judgment. Mm. That seems to be the, the primary way. But some of, these, some of these things he does, these actions he takes or these signs he uses, there are also going to be ways to look to uh, counsel Israel and to point to future hope as well. Okay. So it kind of, it kind of includes all of those. But these are, these are helpful for us because... As I mentioned, the I feel like the narrative sections of scripture are a little bit easier to under, understand. Right, you can kind of get something that's like more physical, more tangible, and so the prophets will put some of their words into these images, these signs, hmm. and it helps us. I can remember these things. I can remember. I can imagine Jeremiah walking around with a yoke on his on his neck, yeah. prophesying about the yoke of Babylon. Right. I can I can imagine boiling water. Yeah, Babylon's coming. Yeah. So these are these are very helpful. So yeah. we're gonna see. A lot of these things. So, um, like I said, I, I wish that the pastors that like to use props today would use props like this, right? <laughs> like that. There's like the prop of like the, the. This is like the most common one ever, right? The like rocks, the pebbles, and the sand. It's like if you put the sand in first, which represents like you're watching TV and your free time and stuff, and you try to like get the big rocks, which is like reading God's word, then you can't fit them. But if you put the big rocks and then the small rocks and the sand. It all fits, you know. That's like that's like the quintessential, you know, illustration. But I feel like if it was Old Testament, it'd be like, take this rock and smack your head with it. <laughs> like this is God's judgment coming down upon you. That would be more. Now, again, I would pay to see that. The rock, pebble, sand, eh, smashing yourself with a rock. That would be interesting. I think I think that's fair. I w- I don't endorse that. I just want to be clear. I don't endorse self smashing with a rock. But God smashing his people with a rock. Yeah. Yeah. 
that I endorse. Okay. Okay. So let's get, jump in. We're going to see quite a few of these. These will be fun. But chapter 11 was where we, we left off. Jeremiah is encouraging them. He's exhorting them. He's charging them to obey God's covenant. Yep. Right? And he says, verse 3, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. So Jeremiah is challenging with them with that. And we again hear God say to him, verse 14, Therefore do not pray for this people yeah. or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen. So God is telling him once again, as he is this sort of mosaic figure, he's kind of an image of Moses, he's telling him, don't don't pray, for, don't intercede for the people. Right. So this is a bad thing. Yeah, it's We're very, seeing this a lot. Very, yeah, very strange in our minds. God's saying, don't pray for these people. Yes. Don't intercede, yeah. I mean, just, I remember Samuel, at the end of his ministry, he says, like, far be it for me that I would sin against you by not praying for you, yeah. right? I believe that was Samuel. So here he's saying, actually, no, don't pray for them. Mm-hmm. It's a lost cause. He, Jeremiah is actually in his hometown. Um, uh, and in verse 21, we see that they're actually seeking his life. So his own you know, friends and family are trying to kill him, is what it seems like. And God's going to protect him. But chapter 11, he's charging them to obey the government. Uh, the government? Covenant. Government? Covenant. The covenant. Yes, the covenant. <laughs> <laughs> in chapter 12, Jeremiah is complaining. Why do the wicked prosper, God? We'll see this. He does this a lot, right? But And God is saying, essentially, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge the wicked. Right. So don't, if you're worried about this, don't worry. I will, I will judge them. Chapter 13, we have sort of the first... Well, we had a couple of these sort of signs, mm-hmm. but this is, this is a good one. So he, he actually hides a loincloth. So in verses 1 and following, he, God says to him, I want you to go to the Euphrates. So you go on this long journey, take your loincloth, mm-hmm. hide it in the rocks. So take your undies and <laughs> take your tidy whities Well, much. actually, a loincloth, I, I, that's what I think of, right? Like his little underwear thing. It was probably a linen belt. Mm-hmm. But that's not as fun. No, no. Go hide your undies in the rocks yep. and then come back and dig it up. And of course, it's ruined. It's ruined. And so the the picture is that this is going to reflect the ruined nation of Judah. They're going to be deport, you know, deported, taken out in exile to that same area. Mm. Verse 11 says, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of the man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. So... They were supposed to be close to God, like a belt is close to you, and yet they went away, and so they're going to be ruined, right. is the picture. So very vivid picture. And then he has one of with these wine jars in verse 12 of chapter 13. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, um, basically get these get these jars of wine and, and you know, fill, yeah, fill these jars with wine, and he says, essentially, I'm going to... I'm going to make Israel drunk. I'm going to make them full of wine so they yeah. can't be clear-thinking and sober-minded. And then verse 14, I'm going to smash them like pots. Uh, so it's pretty pretty clear, right? Yep. Um, there's a lot of sm- smashing of pottery in the book of Jeremiah. Yeah, helpful imagery. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we should, someone should do a paper on that. All the times that pots are smashed in the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> of chapter 14, um, we see so, some more you know threats against Israel, what's going to happen to them. And a, a really powerful prayer from Jeremiah, verse 21, chapter 14. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. So Jeremiah offers this prayer. But the response from God in chapter 15 
is hopeless. At least it seems hopeless, right? Verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward these people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. So again, his, his intercession is not like the kind of Moses who actually worked for the people. Right. He's saying, no, even if Moses and Samuel were here, I wouldn't listen. I'm done with them. God, is, God has given up on his people, at least in the short term. So the next sort of sign that we see is a sign for Jeremiah himself. Chapter 16, he's commanded to be celibate. Mm-hmm. So don't take a wife, right? Don't, don't, don't get married. And um, that's kind of an interesting sign. And then it also says in verse 5 that he can't go to a funeral. Interesting. Why? Don't, don't go to the mourning. So the picture is one of the, the marriage image is probably one of the frustration of Israel. So they're going to be cut off. They're not going to be able to, to have a fulfilling, prosperous, bountiful, fruitful life. Mm-hmm. And when they die, no one will mourn them. That's kind of the picture. So we see that in verse 4, right? They shall not be lamented nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. So this whole picture of don't go, don't go to a funeral is a reminder that no one's going to care when right. they die. Right. It's, it's brutal, right? It reminds yeah. us, you know, the Valley of Hinnom we saw back in chapter 7 mm-hmm. that no one's going to defend them, stand up for them. Yep. They're just going to be burned. So it's really intense, terrible imagery of what, what the effects of sin are. So how sinful are they? Chapter 17 kind of gives us some, it kind of enlightens us a little bit on this. How, how sinful are they? Very famous passage here as well. Chapter 17, so he says, first of all, that they're, the sin of Judah, chapter 17, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablets of their heart and on the horns of their altars. So they are, this is carved into them. Yeah. This cannot be buffed out. You can't get an eraser and, and wipe this off. Right. This is hardwired. So that's how bad their sin is. And then there's a, a, a really amazing passage here, verse starting verse 5, that explains what happens if you trust in God versus if you don't trust in God. Mm-hmm. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So curse comes upon the one who doesn't trust God. He's like, a shrub in the desert. What's a shrub in the desert like? Well, it has no water, right? It doesn't survive. And it, he's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come and shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, hmm. whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream that does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So this is the one who's trusting God. Even in times of drought, it's rooted deep, right. and it has that source of life from God. This is, I mean, this is language that's just like Psalm 1. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, he's contrasting these two ways of thinking, and which one is Israel? Well, Israel is the shrub in the desert, the shrub planted on a salt marsh right. that will not receive any moisture. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mm-hmm. So this is that really famous passage. The heart is deceitful. Um, it's it's without truth. It is sick. It's diseased, and it it has no hope. Yeah. And so he goes on to say, verse ten: I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God's going to give people what they deserve based upon the state of their heart. Right. Which is a terrifying thing. Very terrifying. Especially yeah. if you're Israel. Especially if 
the heart is deceitful above all things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So verse, chapter 18, we have the sign of the potter. Loving all these signs. They're very helpful. Yeah. So chapter 18, what happens is God says, Jeremiah, go to the house of the potter. Go to the potter's workshop and watch what he's doing. And so he watches and the, the guy's making something. I don't know if he has a pottery wheel. Did they have those back then? They had to. Sure. Something like Make that. Make something yeah. So he's, he's making something and it's basically he says that the potter goes, oh, I, I want to remake this thing that I was making. So he refashions it into something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like this pot. I'm going to make something different. And the word of God, this, this image is given for this reason. Verse 6, right? God says, oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Because Lord, behold, the clay, you are oh, sorry, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, right. O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning nation or kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. This word's familiar? Um, yeah, a little bit. Chapter one, verse ten, right? Yeah. That, that's the same words. Pluck up, break down, destroy. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent to the disaster I intended to do to it. So he says, Can't I do this if Somebody is evil, and I say I'm going to destroy them, and they turn, then I can bless them? Mm-hmm. Of course I can. I can change my mind. I can, I can change based upon how you act. Right. And verse 8, if the nation concerning which I have spoken... Uh, ter- Sorry, I read that already. Verse 9, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it... Mm-hmm. Yep, again. Same words um, from ch- chapter 1. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good... I had intended to do of it. So he's saying, just because I I gave you blessing early on, doesn't mean that I'm obligated to do something for you now. Right. I can do as I want to do, mm-hmm. right? So going to that topic of free will, which we kind of mentioned earlier, free will is something that God has. Mm-hmm. God can act how he wants to act. We are the potter in his hand. Doesn't mean we don't have the ability to choose. Of course we do. But God is the absolute sovereign one who can do whatever he pleases. Right. No one else is is really like that. Yeah, we're all constrained by many things. God is not. Right. Yeah. And so the fact that we would say, "Well, God has to do this," is absolutely ridiculous. Right. So the pot this this Potter sign is one that reminds them of God's freedom to do what He wants to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, as we move forward through this book, too, the, the fact that God even keeps any you know the covenant at all is pretty impressive because we've broken contract long before. That's right. So, well, he goes to great lengths to repair and fulfill the covenant, you yeah. know, as we know. Well. Chapter 19 brings back the pottery image. So God sends him again to the potter to buy an earthenware flask. So to buy a piece of pottery, to bring it, and to go to the rulers, right? Go to the, the king and to, talk, to basically prophesy disaster on Israel. So he says, uh, verse... Where am I? Verse 3. Right, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. He goes on to say why he is bringing disaster. And then verse 10, God tells him, smash the pot. Mm-hmm. Right, smash the pottery on the ground because this is how, verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people in the city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Mm-hmm. God's going to just destroy them, smash them. That's the picture. It's a it's a rough one. This is you know God saying He created, He so He can make us as He wants to make us, right. like the potter over the the pot, and He can also destroy us. Mm-hmm. 
Like this is the, this is what your parents said, <laughs> which was never true, right? I can I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. That's a threat to murder. So I uh, that's <laughs> disturbing to me, right? I hope I don't ever say that to my kids. But um, in God's case, that's absolutely true. Yeah, my mom said, and we should be time. humbled by that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It hurt, I'm sure it, it hurts you deeply. It's okay. Prepare me for a relationship with God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, chapter 20 has, has a great verse, verse 9. Chapter 20, verse 9, just in, in that theme of God's word. As I mentioned, there's so many great passages about God's word in Jeremiah. Verse 9 says, if I, if I say I will not mention him, meaning God, or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Hmm. Jeremiah has to. He's burdened. He has to speak God's word. Yeah, I love that verse, this reminder that Jeremiah just has to proclaim God's truth. Yeah. yeah. Again, we see him interceding in chapter 21. Um, Jeremiah striving to intercede for God's people. And for King Zedekiah, in chapter 22, we see a really famous passage about um, Coniah. So in verse 24, there's this prophecy that's made about Coniah. We, we, heard, it, we, we heard about him in the books of Kings and Chronicles mm-hmm. at, under the name of Jehoiachin yep. or Jeconiah. Okay. So Coniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, all the same person. Great. Why? I don't know. I really don't know. I've <laughs> wondered that one. Why so many names? Is I mean, Jeconiah and Coniah kind of make sense to me. It's like, oh, don't like just kind of nickname. Yeah, you know, I don't know. But Jehoiachin seems very different. <laughs> so, but he's he's speaking to Jeconiah or Coniah, this king. So he's the he's really the last king of Israel. Zedekiah is kind of like a replacement mm-hmm. king uh, by Babylon, but he ends up turning against Babylon. Anyway, so Jeconiah is kind of like the end of the, the line of kings from David, so to speak, the direct descendants. So this is what this is what he says. This is the judgment given to Jeconiah. So his dad, Jehoiachin's dad is Jehoiakim. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you can, yeah, so that's kind of weird. But so <laughs> as I live, verse 24, this is chapter 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. So I'm going to, even though you're my, this precious possession, a a signet ring, right? Something that carries royal authority. I'm going to tear you off and throw you into the fire. I'm going to abandon you. Mm. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, is this man Coniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Mm. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This is massive. This is a monumental prophecy here because what he's saying clearly is, Jeconiah is going to have no offspring that will sit on the throne of mm. David. So no one from his line will ever be king. Mm. This is a huge problem, obviously, because this kingly line, as we were tracing through the book of Kings and Chronicles, 
this is where the hope of the world lies. Right. Remember 2 Samuel 7. Remember, remember God's covenant with David, that David's throne is God's throne. That there's a, a, a combining of them, that God is placing humans in a, in a connection with his own heavenly throne mm-hmm. in some sense. And so the plan of salvation is going to go through David and, and his line. So the entire world depends upon this messianic king, this one who will come sit on the throne and fulfill the purpose of David. And now he's saying that no descendant of Jeconiah can ever sit on the throne. Right. So is the line totally cut off? Is the offspring from Genesis 3.15 totally gone? Mm-hmm. This was one we've been waiting for. It was supposed to come through David. So how is that going to be resolved? Re, re, or, yeah, resolved. How, yeah. And we're going to see that uh, a little bit later. But that's a big problem. Huge problem for the, yeah, the hope of this people. Yeah. So chapter 23, God begins to attack the prophets, which he's done before. He attacked the king previously. He attacked the priests previously. He's attacking all the leaders of Israel. And so as a response to the, the lack of good leadership in Israel, God's going to bring a new David. Mm. The, the placement of this is very strange, given mm-hmm. that he just cursed David's line, right? at least through Jeconiah. So, but he says, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's Isaiah language. Right. Yep. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will, be, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which you will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So mm. God's going to bring a king who will fix everything. Right. So he there's hope. Yeah, so he won't forget David. He'll remake his promises. This is very interesting. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Mm. So remember, that the defining saving act of Israel's history was the exodus from Egypt. Right. So he's saying they're not going to they're not going to speak of God in those terms anymore. Verse eight, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where He had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So there's going to be, in other words, he's saying they're going to refer to the greatest act of salvation as God's deliverance from this this other exile, right. this greater exile. So just like Exodus. They were they were a land they were in a land not their own they were saved by God God's going to do that again a second Exodus right so Exodus and exile are big themes that really connect in a lot of ways hmm. and really I mean when I think we might have mentioned this but when they are deported to Babylon they're going back not just to the Exodus pre Exodus when they were enslaved in Egypt right not just to Exodus chapter one as we might think of it but they're going all the way back to Genesis chapter eleven. Yeah. Before Abraham came out of Babylon, they're going back to the starting place of their nation, hmm. which was Abraham and his family coming out of Babylon. Right. They too will will be in Babylon and have to come out of it again right. and be restored. So this is going to be the second exodus that will one day happen. Hmm. So where are we at here? Verse 9 or... Yeah, we'll, we'll skip that. We'll skip that. Let's just move on here. So we yeah. see some, some words about false prophets. Yeah. Um, and then verse 29, great verse. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's word is powerful, mm-hmm. is powerful. And, and we could go through the words about the prophets before that. There's some good words there as well. But 
we just want to we want to get moving on here a little bit. So chapter twenty four, a new image, which is another sign, which mm-hmm. is the, these fig baskets. So two baskets, one with good figs, one with bad figs. God says the exiles are the good figs. It's right. kind of surprising. Yeah, those who are in exile are the good figs that God says are good. The ones that stay and think they can resist Babylon are the bad ones. Mm. So what God's going to be doing is going to be saying, you have to embrace this. You have to realize that my plan for you is exile. Right. You're going into exile, yep. so go with it. Uh, 25, we see this prophecy of 70 years of captivity in verse 11. It's going to be 70 years they'll be in Babylon, mm-hmm. and then God's going to bring them out. Chapter 26, Jeremiah's own life is threatened. He goes and prophesies, and the king does not like it, so the king imprisons him, and Jeremiah speaks to the people and says, essentially, I'm speaking God's word. This is the word that God has spoken, and they respond in verse 16 by saying, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. So God's word protects Jeremiah even mm-hmm. when he's in trouble. And and really, Jeremiah, until he's freed from, from prison, and really Jeremiah himself is kind of a sign here of what he's talking about. He's, he's been saying, you're going to go in chains to Babylon, but God will bring you out of it. Right. And Jeremiah is going to the same thing, mm. being put in prison, being brought out, that, that they will be saved one day. So he's, he's, through these passages, he's saying again and again, you're going to go to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Chapter 20, 27, he actually puts this yoke on his neck, mm-hmm. right? Like, a, like an ox, this big yeah. piece of wood that clamps down on your head. And um, he's saying through this, you're going to go under the yoke of Babylon. You're going to be a slave in Babylon. And this is God's plan for you. Mm-hmm. So don't fight it. Right. So don't think that you can say, we're going to rebel against Babylon. We're going to defend ourselves. That's not what God wants for you. Instead, you should submit to that. Mm-hmm. And in chapter 28, the false prophet Hananiah decides he's going to contradict Jeremiah. And he's going to tell the people what they want to hear. So he basically says, in, within two years, everything's going to be fine. Everyone's going to be back. The king will be back. Everything will be great. Mm-hmm. Everything will be safe and wonderful. And I love Jeremiah's response to it. Jeremiah, um, he says in, uh, in verse 6, so this is in the court, right? So he prophesies this, and Jeremiah responds and says, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true. So he's like, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, yeah, I'm wrong that everything's going to be good. Perfect. Let's, let's hope for that. But verse 9, as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Mm. So he goes back to Deuteronomy, the law of the prophets, right? If you're prophesying, so he, what he's implying here by yeah. using that same language is, if you're prophesying incorrectly, you're going to die. Right. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, let's wait a little bit and see. But And then Hananiah actually breaks the yoke from his neck. He says, this is what's going to happen. We're going to be freed from slavery. And... Um, and verse 13, this is, this is, uh, I thought this was Jeremiah's like Donald Trump moment. Like the wall just got 10 feet higher, you know, because <laughs> he says, God's now going to replace that wooden yoke with a yoke of iron. Mm. So yeah, you think that you can resist God. Now that wall just got 10 feet higher. That's now iron. Um, you're, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> Except his, you know, this is really going to come true. So, and then he said, it goes on to say in verse 15 and 16, because you've made the people trust in a lie, you're going to die within a year. Right. And, of course, verse 17, he died. 
He died. So within a year, he dies. So the word of God is so powerful. When you go against it, when you give a false message of vain hope, it, it, the judgment comes upon you. Right. So that's what's happening here. So God is taking down the false prophets and showing, vindicating that Jeremiah is the true prophet. Mm. All this is to warn the people, to right. warn them that judgment is coming, and God actually has a plan for them through judgment, right. through exile. And that's where we get to chapter 29, which will be the last chapter we deal with today. And this is his letter to the exiles. He's writing to those who, right, some people are already in exile at this point. There's mm-hmm. been a couple of, you know, times they've been conquered. It hasn't been the final conquering, but there's people already there. And so Jeremiah's writing to them saying, this is how you should live. How, so should your posture in Babylon be one of, we just want to go back to Israel? We just want to rebel against the king? No, he's already said there's a 70-year term. Mm-hmm. So that response should actually be one of investing in and building up the city that you're in. Mm. Not being segregated, not being drawn away from society, but actually right. living in a way where you can bless those around you. Mm. So this is what he says, right, as he's speaking to the, the exiles in Babylon, verse, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So have families, right? Be model citizens. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Hmm. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Hmm. So this is this is amazing. So he's saying, Live in a way to bless the city. Mm-hmm. Seek to do good to those around you. That's how God has now called you to live. Right. So when you're in exile, you don't have your home, you're called to bless the city. So we actually we find connection for this to us today, right. that we should care about the city, bless the city. I think that's a right thing because we as Christians are in exile yeah. in a different way, but similar ideas that are used later on in Scripture, mm-hmm. as we'll see. So. So he, and then he goes on to say, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yeah. That's that famous verse, right? I have plans for you. And what he's saying here is I have plans for you in the midst of the worst disaster coming upon you. Right. I still have a plan to redeem you. Right. So know that, that judgment in this case is not meant to make a final end of you. It's meant to point you towards God. Yeah, grace. And then he goes on to say, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. I will bring you back. Mm. I will bring you back. The exile will be undone. God has a plan that he's going to fulfill through his people. So um, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff that God reminds us of in the end of this section. Yeah. And there's no question. Like if, you're, if you have a question about who's in control of this story <laughs> at this point, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like God is clearly exactly. the author of this history. Absolutely. So, should we go to the the New Testament? Yeah, man. How does the gospel, how we see the gospel, the hope of Jesus in these passages? Well, so one one passage that everyone kind of brings up is 1 Peter. 1 Peter speaks to this idea of exiles. Mm-hmm. We see he, he writes this letter to the elect exiles in verse 1 of, of 1 Peter 1, and, the, and we see him talk about us in this way. Mm-hmm. Chapter 2, 17. Or sorry, chapter one, seventeen, or no, two eleven. That's what I want to go to two eleven. But hold, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So because of, because of Christ's sacrifice, his redemption of us, we are people without a homeland. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the exile has never really ended for Israel. Mm. Even though they have a homeland now, at least, at least you know, in a political sense, they've been exiled, right? We are without a home, but we're awaiting a better home. And we see the same thing in Hebrews 11, 13. Right. This whole you know, list of people, this hall of faith passage, that these are those who lived as exiles, who longed for a better home. Mm-hmm. And so we're the same. Right? Yeah. We're, lo- we're longing for the place where we really belong. Yeah. So this world is always going to be messed up. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Right. And then I would just say, in terms of Jeconiah's curse and the gospel, there's an important connection here. Because we were left with this massive problem of saying that the, that the heir to the throne, Jeconiah, couldn't have an heir of his own. Right. That the true king couldn't have a true king that came from him. How could we have a Davidic king ever if that line is ended? Right. If he's childless in terms of having a king. Well, the, the idea that we see in the New Testament is that there's actually a way to resolve this. So in the life of so we, we might think like, well, Jesus, he's actually the son of Joseph. In Matthew chapter one, we see that Joseph in his line is a son of Jeconiah. Hmm the rightful king, but he can't be the king. Mm-hmm. So if Joseph is his son, that's a problem. Or sorry, if Jesus is Joseph's son, that's a problem. Right. But we know that he's actually not his son, not right. not physically. Right. By adoption, yes, but not physically. And in Luke 3, we have the lineage of Mary, most mm-hmm. likely. And she comes through, the, through David, but through a different line. Mm-hmm. She doesn't come through Jeconiah. And so Jesus is born into that line, into David's family, mm but he's adopted into Jeconiah's family. Right. So he is the rightful king on, on both counts. Right. So that's an amazing way that God resolves that problem. Yeah. Something that you know a lot of us aren't even aware was ever a problem. <laughs> but God is aware of that, and he makes sure to resolve that right. in the story of Jesus. Yeah. It's incredible. No, it's amen. Very cool. That's all I got. That's that's I think that's enough. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We can have faith in that Messiah that has come. So... That's all we got for today. We will finish Jeremiah next week, though, so please join us for that. Thanks for joining us today for Daily Gospel, and we'll see you next week.